Hi, friend. Welcome to episode 42 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. Today, my awesome guest is professor and playwright Jenny Kokai. Her book, Swim Pretty, explores mermaid culture and feminism through shows like the Wiki Watchy Mermaids in Spring Hill, Florida. But we'll talk about a whole lot more. Sally Pal podcast host, Sally Adams. Every week, I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Send an email anytime to sally at sallypal.com. Your ideas keep great conversations coming every week. Check out sallypal.com join for a cool free theater resource called the Creator's Notebook. Also, you can be a Sally Pal just by joining. There are other good reasons to join, like free theater cartoons and inside scoop on fresh productions, and I want your help building a creator community I've named The Clearing. You can find a link to it on my blog at sallypal.com. Jenny Kokai is a theater professor at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. Her book, Swim Pretty, examines feminism, mermaid performances, and the culture of mermaid parks. For anyone paying attention to pop culture, mermaids have begun to move past the traditional pretty white female into interpretations that include transgender, disabled, and racially diverse representations. The reinvention of culture isn't limited to mermaids. According to my guest, there are ways in which theater of all kinds is making an impact on the way people view difference. She and her 11-year-old son recently co-wrote a play exploring a child's anxiety disorder through gaming. They recently received National Endowment for the Arts funding, enabling the show to tour to a broad audience. In addition, Kokai uses her position as a university professor to explore ways her students can take ownership of their learning. I know you'll enjoy hearing this interview with well-regarded scholar, professor, playwright, and author Jenny Kokai. Be sure and listen until the end of the interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started. Jenny Kokai, thank you so much for joining me on Sally Pal. Absolutely. This is a show where we talk about creating original work for a live audience, but we also talk about all kinds of other things. You are a professor at Weber State University in Utah, yes? Weber State, but yeah. <laughs> That's so funny because I called ahead of time to make sure I was pronouncing your name correctly. Didn't bother to get the pronunciation of your school. It's Weber. There should be right. an extra E in there, I guess, but there is, you know, for everyone else. I was so interested in reading your description of the class classroom that you set up for Topsy Turvy Day because I've just retired from a career as a drama teacher in middle and high school and I so appreciate that approach. So tell me a little bit about why you think that approach to teaching had meaning for you and what it is that you did. Uh, you know, most of the research shows that the way that we actually retain information is by either doing something uh, or connecting it to something that we already care about. Uh, a lot of the ways that people usually teach in college or traditionally taught, it's kind of going away, thank goodness, is by lecturing at people. 
um, which is the least good way of getting right. them to retain information or care about things. Right. Sage on the stage. Yeah. So I really avoid that. So I bring in donuts and I write up on the board, uh, the classes, your responsibility for the next 50 minutes, uh, have a festive donut. And then I sat down in the back of the rows of the desks where the students were. And um, the students acted really puzzled at first. And somebody was like, is she mad at us? And someone else was like, she can't be mad at us because she brought donuts. Somebody else was like, well, what are we supposed to be doing? And I just sort of (laughs) stare at them. And usually what happens pretty much every time is that somebody's like, oh, I don't know. Let's just go through the reading again and figure out what we're supposed to be doing. They pull out their textbooks and they start going over the reading and they mention topsy-turvy. And so my students love Disney. So inevitably somebody's like, oh, there's a whole song about that in Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Disney movie. And so then they, or Notre Dame, sorry, I'm from Kentucky, so I say it the Indiana way. Um, it's all good. <laughs> and so then they watch Topsy Turvy, and they go through the Bach teen, and at the end of the class, usually, somebody's like, oh, I get it. It's Topsy Turvy Day. She's sitting where the students sit, and we are teaching ourselves. And then everybody sort of heads out. You must have just such a great time watching them struggle with the concept and figure it out all on their own. Absolutely. It's hard as a teacher to trust your students and to be quiet. Teachers are not always good at being quiet. Yeah. In addition to being a professor, you're also a director. Do you ever use that technique when you're directing a show? So that's a really interesting question. So I do a lot of new work or work that's at least partially devised with students. The last two plays I did were a brand new play we commissioned called The Class of 94 by Diana Grisanti. And the year before that, we did a modern adaptation of Six Characters in Search of an Author by Pirandello. Um, and we had the playwright Steve Moulds in residence with us for a little bit. And then he, uh, if you know six characters, the setting is that you're in a rehearsal that's going badly. And then the characters interrupt and sort of take over the story. And so we devised the actors who were rehearsing at the beginning to be the students who were playing them. So they were kind of playing themselves. And that sounds very much like the classroom exercise, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So it's challenging because students are taught to look to a director as an authority, an all-powerful authority. And it's challenging to get students to trust that things will be okay if you don't assume the all-powerful authority position. And it's also challenging sometimes with young performers. Um, You know, sometimes you get those who see it as a void and try to rush in and take over as the authority, which is obviously not the goal. So one thing I've noticed that's really important is to have at least a week of rehearsals, which is a lot, actually, but to have a week where we do ensemble activities, skills building, games, and so where we develop rapport, and then we can go into rehearsals. If I skip that, it never works out. But if we work ahead of time to be an ensemble and to be a team and to set some sort of guidelines about how we work, then I do allow a lot of space for actors to create their roles or to collaborate with playwrights or to collaborate with me, or to offer suggestions. Um, And that's really important to me as an artist and an educator. What do you think about that when you think about using the team-building technique, you know, building the ensemble, with a traditional work that people might be familiar with versus something that no one's ever seen before? It depends on how you want to approach things, but I think it's important regardless of what you're doing. So I've done Tartuffe and you know, The Tempest by Shakespeare. And the same things kind of held true from beginning to end, that if you 
work to create a space where people are respectful of each other's boundaries, but also feel entitled to share their ideas and opinions and aren't Mm -hmm. just looking to the director to tell them how to do it, then the work that you get, I think, is always more interesting and more vibrant uh, and smarter than if you have one person, no matter how smart and artistically talented they are, I think the ideas of everybody, if you're working together well, are always better. When you had the new plays playwright come in and work with you, was that play still fresh enough for the playwright that they were able to participate with the students in any kind of development? Oh, absolutely. That was a very long developmental process with Diana. We started it three years before the show went up. She Mm -hmm. wrote a draft. She and I workshopped it at Theater 502 in Louisville, Kentucky, because we just both happened to be from there, coincidentally. We kind of started working on it a little bit in January, but she came in the second week of rehearsals and was there in residency the whole time. And so we would go through, you know, things that she had questions about, things that she didn't think were working, and we would sort of get the scenes up on their feet and then talk about them a lot so that she got everyone's input And so we didn't get a finished draft of that show until three weeks before we opened. I can imagine having so little time with the absolute finished product would be pretty difficult. (laughs) It is a stressful thing. But that was one of the things. I've moved away in auditions from relying upon a sort of traditional audition structure towards having students come in in groups and do improvisation or, again, ensemble activities. Sometimes I ask for, you know, things that fit the world of the show, like, Sometimes we need people who can sing. I've asked people before to sell me something. We do a season of all new plays every four years. Students are familiar with this, and they also hear from others about the the pluses and minuses of new works and how they're different. And so one of the things I tell them up front is that this is going to be a challenge. This is going to require you to memorize things very quickly because who knows when we'll get the last version. This -hmm. is going to require you to not get desperately attached to something in the script that might not stay. I promised all of them that after I cast the show, we would not cut any of their parts, although going forward uh, in another iteration, you know, Diana might well cut some of the parts. So, you know, I try to be honest and upfront with the students about how making new work is different. Um, And it is stressful and it is tiring uh, and it is hard, but I think it's very, very valuable. And I think the students felt like, they could see how their ideas had an impact on the script and mm-hmm. they owned those characters and they believed in that script in a way that they might not have if we were doing Shakespeare. And your audition technique strikes a chord with me. I've been a youth theater director for years and years. And one of the things that I noticed was kids in middle school and high school even don't always have the ability to do the text work for an audition. We do a lot of improvisation there just because I think that gives me a better idea of what they're capable of in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think there is value in having a good audition portfolio for auditions because, uh-huh. you know, our students are are going out into professional theater and we want them to be prepared for that. But there's also value in college theater, you know, especially because I care about getting people on stage who haven't been on stage yet or, you know, involving freshmen pushing people to try something outside of the type that they see themselves as, which might be the monologue that they come in with. Well, not only that, though, I think you probably also get a sense of how they work in ensemble. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter how talented somebody is, if they're a total (laughs) jerk, 
I don't yep. want to work with them. And nobody else does either. <laughs> right, exactly. Speaking of working with people, tell me something about the play you wrote with your son. There's an original work right there. It sounds like it's getting some good play. Yeah, so I was commissioned by Plan B Theater in Salt Lake, which is a theater company I work with a lot, to write a, a theater for young audiences play. And it was sort of less very open-ended what it could be. And only the, I mean, it had to be two to three people. Later, it started out as three people, and then they told me two. And I was like, what? Because it's really hard to cut people. So I was writing this play, and it could be for either K through third grade or fourth through sixth grade, which is the upper level of elementary in Utah. And I was like, okay, well, I could write this. Or at the time, my son was nine. I was like, or I could just ask this, like, native informer what he <laughs> thinks should be on stage. So he was kind of dubious about this, but he agreed to collaborate with me on this play. And so our process was that we started by just talking, and I would record us talking about what he was interested in, what he was worried about, what he would like to see on the stage, those kinds of things. He's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, which has complicated life for him a little bit because it made things at school very, very difficult. And so he was interested in writing a play about that that would be... From his point of view, the ideal outcome would be for other kids who didn't suffer from anxiety or depression to see the play and to be more understanding of what that's like. And from my point of view as a parent, in kids, anxiety looks like irritability or defiance or um, a lot of teachers take it as like a challenging of their authority. So I was really interested, since we have this tour that's going to 8,000 different elementary school students and their teachers. I was really interested in how we could show what it feels like to be a kid with anxiety to a teacher so that maybe they would have a different perspective on it. So he and I would talk and talk and talk, and he would act things out. He came up with the characters who are Sam and Pig. Both of those characters (laughs) could be either a girl or a boy. I love that open casting. It's great. Yeah. Sam is nine years old and has anxiety. Um, They're in a video game. So the audience gets to make a lot of choices about what they're doing. So you, the first thing that you do is pick which actor is going to play which part, which, mm-hmm. again, is really stressful for the actors because they have to learn both Sam and Pig. So Sam has anxiety, and he's armed with a book, and he really likes to read. And then Pig is very confident and likes to make a lot of puns and has a rubber chicken. That's what that's his <laughs> or, his or her quote-unquote weapon. Sure. So then the machine, uh, which is the video game they're in, puts them through different levels of the 12 things that Sam finds the scariest, which uh, Ollie made a Pinterest page of all of the things he found scary. So we used all of them in the show. It's like the nine circles of hell right there. Right. It's kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's really fun and it's really funny and it was really fun to collaborate. And Ollie had great ideas. Like when we went from three person to two person, we were really stuck on how to make that happen. And Ollie yeah. was like, well, hey, what if we give them a cell phone and an app, like a game app, and the app tells them things because we can't have a third person doing it? Oh. Brilliant. What a great solution. I know, right? I'm like, oh, that is so brilliant. We did a couple of readings in the Plan B Playwriting Lab. It will be touring this fall to kids all over northern Utah. It will also be touring in a separate unrelated tour through Building Better People Productions in Annapolis, Maryland. And also today we just found out that our Plan B production got our endowment for the arts grant. How is your son feeling about all that? You know, (laughs) I think he doesn't have perspective as an 11-year-old to know. I think he's really excited 
He's really excited to see it. He's really excited for other people to see it. But I'm not sure that he has the perspective to know how unusual it is as an 11-year-old to have such success as a playwright. He's also currently making his professional acting debut in Fun Home at Salt Lake Acting Company. So he's having a big year. You've got a prodigy on your hands. I know. I don't know that he wants to be in theater going forward. I think he wants to be a computer programmer. You've written about mermaid performances and the cultures of these mermaid parks in your book, Swim Pretty. You have a lot of thoughts about the culture of these parks, which you've written on extensively, and some of the other pieces that actually incorporate mermaids. There's a surprisingly large number of mermaid plays. Um, Isn't that unusual? There's a play opening, actually, it's a, it's a student senior thesis at Princeton. Um, what is the play called? Like, The Trash Mermaids? And it's about mermaids and ecology and um, queer representation. So there, there's sort of a huge mermaid counterculture because the predominant idea of a mermaid in our culture is a very traditionally attractive white woman. Uh, mm-hmm. And the wiki watching mermaids are pretty much all very traditional attractive white women. I saw no mermaids of color. They're few and far between, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. So culturally, we see mermaids as these like super skinny super pretty, long, flowing hair, pastels. But there's a huge movement, I think, of people who don't see themselves in that kind of fantasy space of reclaiming that identity. So uh, the transgender community has really latched on to mermaid um, because it's a hybrid. It's neither one nor the other, neither man nor fish. That sort of happened after a lot of my research, so I don't really write about that that much. Or, you know, there's I've seen mermaid performers who are people of color who have sort of claimed an identity in the mermaid space that otherwise they have not had. The new Sirens TV show, the first ever black mermaid on television is in that Sirens show. I'm seeing a lot of people taking hold of these sort of fantasy fairy tale ideals and using them to talk about things that they care about or to create a representation of themselves in that fantasy, which is really exciting. Also in fairy tales uh, or fantasy things, we don't see people with disabilities represented very much. That is an attraction for cosplayers who are wheelchair-bound. That's one costume that they can uh, pull off without having to have the ability to walk wearing a tail. So that's another great moment of people sort of, you know, seeing the possibilities for themselves to be represented. We can make a difference culturally when we start telling these stories, pulling the curtain back. We don't have enough playwrights with disabilities writing from their perspective. What's produced is most often a neurotypical or, a, you know, someone who's not dealing with a disability writing about disability. Um, right. So I'm thinking about, like, A Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. It's a really interesting play about a, a character who may or may it's not, they don't specifically say, but it seems like they're on the autism spectrum. But that play is not by someone on the autism spectrum, and it's not performed. Sometimes the lead actor is, but most of the time it's not. And Ollie and I went to see that in New York, and it was produced in such a way that it was so loud and so, you know, so many flashing things. Um, and it was, he hated it. Someone with autism might not actually be able to see the play. It would probably be not a good idea at all because, um, you know, Ollie's not autistic, but he has similar sensory reactions to things. I think that it's really important that we make space for playwrights with disabilities writing about their disabilities instead of having playwrights writing about people with disabilities. I think it's about having a perspective and coming from an honest, truthful place and 
seeing who we're inviting to the table as an artist. Oh, absolutely. And I have a playwright that I interviewed not very long ago, Nicole Zimmerer, who's working at Carnegie Mellon right now. And one of the things she says, she has cerebral palsy. And she talks about writing for the role. She says, inevitably, the character is someone who, in a fantasy sequence, will get up and dance. You know, get up out of the wheelchair and dance. She says, that's so frustrating. It's a little paternalistic, you know, I guess I could say. Paternalistic is a great word because, you know, I'm writing this play for fourth through sixth graders. And when we, when we read it through the first time, the people in the lab are really great and really generous with feedback. But they were like, well, we want Sam to win. We want Sam to beat anxiety and to be better. And I'm like, that is not how it works. You learn how to cope with it. You learn skills that allow you to, you know, function. But you never get over, a, you know, a mental disorder. And so Ollie was like, adults always want there to be fake happy endings in kids shows or kids movies. But that's mm-hmm. dumb. Kids know that's dumb. And isn't that a reflection of our discomfort with these things? I think we all want to be able to snap our fingers and give our kids the easiest route through life, like to make them. We all say we want our kids to be special, but then... Not really. <laughs> not really. No, we want them to be able to get through school and succeed mm-hmm. in traditional ways and to get along with people and to not be challenging and difficult individuals. I think, you know, a lot of times plays that we write for kids reflect what we want, which is for everybody to get along and be happy, but it doesn't reflect <laughs> how kids see things. Well, certainly the the people who have been through some struggles and had to deal with difficult situations and, and come out the other side with a greater understanding are far more interesting than people who have never had to face a challenge. Yeah, but again, harder to work with, right, in the traditional professional theater structure. Harder to cast, for sure, yeah. Harder to communicate with as writers if they don't communicate in neurotypical fashions. We do ourselves a great disservice when we cut all of those people out of the room because of things like commercial pressure, mm-hmm. which is one reason that I... I'm really attached to college and academic theater. I'm in the fortunate position where I don't have those commercial pressures most of the time, and I don't have to think about those choices because, you know, that wouldn't reflect my values. There was just an article in HowlRound about how college theater programs perpetuate uh, eating disorders and body dysmorphia because they're so concerned with making students who will get commercial work, and commercial work has a very specific body attached to it. I'm not interested in that at all. But if we keep perpetuating that, then we're producing more of the problem. College is the opportunity where you can say, yeah, there aren't enough parts for people who aren't traditionally, you know, attractive bodies. Own yourself, go in there, be the sexiest person in the room, regardless of your size. Maybe someone will see that differently. Or if you're directing, think about characters, not just how they look, to think about who they are and could that look like somebody else. What kind of uh, advice would you give to someone who is trying to get into the world of producing new work or reinterpreting older work? You know, I think what's, what's interesting about my theater career is that I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, which has the Actors Theater of Louisville and every year has the Humana Festival of New Plays, which is the biggest new play festival, I think, in the U.S., um, or certainly one of the most prestigious ones. And I also went to a performing arts high school where I was trying to be an acting major, and I was terrible at acting, as it turns out. (laughs) But we had a playwriting and directing class where we could select to be in it, and we wrote plays. And then every year, our very, very patient high school teacher, Pat Allison, bless her, uh, shepherded us all through um, directing and putting them up in front of an audience. I didn't grow up going to Golden Age musicals. I grew up going to see, like, Anne Bogart reinventing Miss Julie, using the music for Mortal Kombat. 
always being told in the theater program that my voice mattered. And so I sort of always had that idea that new work was really exciting, that, you know, or reinterpreting a classic, you know, made you think about theater in a way that you never could have imagined. Um, that Miss Julie production I saw when I was 15 was like mind blowing. And I'm a historian, so I do think it's important to know historical context, to not think that you're inventing something that like the futurists were doing in 1930 Italy, which happens a lot. Find people who you can collaborate with who have a similar vision or aesthetic approach as you, who you trust, and make some stuff. And it doesn't have to be big stuff, and it doesn't have to be expensive stuff, and it doesn't have to be fully produced stuff, and it could happen. There's a really cool little theater company in Provo, Utah, that's taken over a, um, an old store space in an empty mall and are doing kind of very cutting-edge stuff for Provo, Utah, which tends to be more conservative, and they're just kind of making it happen. You can't wait for somebody to give you permission as an artist. You can't wait for somebody to choose you or to see you. If you have something to say, then you should just say it, and you should find other people who want to say that thing too, and then you should make that happen. Thank you so much, because that's really the message of this podcast. It has been just wonderful getting to know you, at least by phone, Jenny Kokai. Thanks so much. It's time now for concise advice from the interview, where I share bits of advice from professor, author, and playwright Jenny Kokai. Number 11. Develop rapport before you go into rehearsing an ensemble show. Number 10. Create a rehearsal space where people are respectful of each other's boundaries. Number 9. Create a rehearsal space where people feel free to share their ideas and opinions. Number eight, no matter how smart and artistically talented a director may be, it's always better when a whole team works together well. Number seven, we do ourselves a great disservice when we cut people with disabilities out of the process because of things like commercial pressure. Number six, a lot more playwrights with disabilities need to be writing from their perspective. Number five, when developing a new play, do not get attached to portions of the script. Number four, when auditioning for a sexy role, be the sexiest person in the room, regardless of your size. Number three, Find trustworthy people you can collaborate with who have a similar vision and make stuff. Number two, if you have something to say, you should say it. And the number one piece of advice from author Jenny Kokai, your voice matters. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out the blog sallypal.com for articles and podcast episodes. You too can be a Sally Pal. Sign up for a creator's notebook insert at sallypal.com slash join. Thank you for following, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. Now, I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? You never learn anything 
from people who agree with you. Well said, George. Well said. Excellent advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or falling asleep to my nattering narratives like my sister does, let me know you're out there. Storytelling through plays, dances, opera, and other types of performances is the most important thing we do as a culture. That's why I encourage you to share your stories because you're the only one with your particular point of view. And Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of storytellers. I want you to tell your stories. All the stories ever expressed once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, if you have something to say, you should say it. Wasn't so bad. It's not so bad. Right now I'm talking with my lunch. Okay, well now all I have to do is put the whole ding dong thing together. <laughs> Very good. You used to stick around and help me with some with the rest of this. With Rebba Rebba Rebba. Rabba Rabba Rebba. Professor, playwright. And what else is she? She's so many things. Or she's also an author. I really should point that out, don't you think? <laughs> uh.